0: Episode 294 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by our friends at cloud accounting software, FreshBooks, offering you a free 30-day trial right now. To find out more about it, visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section.
1: When we present... The audience is forming a tremendous number of judgments about us and you want to develop i think a persona a presence that's powerful compelling appealing
0: hey welcome to the read to lead podcast the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth i'm jeff brown and i believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life then intentional and consistent reading is a must. This podcast is all about digging into some of today's best books through conversations with the authors themselves. Now, in just a moment, we'll be joined by Tim Pollard. Now, nearly every episode here on the podcast, I ask guests questions about public speaking, their tips for delivering an impactful and memorable public talk. Well, today's conversation with Tim is all about public speaking. His new book is called Mastering the Moment, Perfecting the Skills and Processes of Exceptional, presentation delivery i'll ask tim to share about the importance of anticipating the mindset of the group you're speaking to what proper presentation rehearsal should look like and what traps you should try to avoid the three aspects of a speaker's style that matter most to an audience and lots more well, I could tell you all about Tim Pollard's accolades, his background, everything he's accomplished. But what I really want you to know is the main reason Tim is here is to help you perfect the skills and processes of exceptional presentation delivery. Uh, in fact, that is the subtitle of his brand new book called Mastering the Moment came out just a few weeks ago. Tim, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you, man. It's great to
0: talk to you again. Well, Tim uh, starts this new book focusing on delivery, whereas the last one focused mostly on presentation design. Uh, by talking about the fact that you know, you've got this presentation beautifully designed, but making sure that presentation is actually what shows up on game day is not quite as as simple as you might think. Uh, talk Tim a bit about the relationship between design and our focus today, delivery.
1: Sure. I mean, I think most people don't even really draw or understand a clear distinction in their own in their own mind. Mm-hmm. So designing a message, a presentation is, is still the more important thing. If you're if you're just jumbled, unclear narrative, you, you, don't, you your, your presentation doesn't make sense to people. It's bloated, ton of slides. You're going to have problems from which you will not be able to recover. <laughs> (laughs) But if you've built a great message, it's audience-centric, it's crisp, it's clean, it's insight-driven, it understands how to engage the brain in terms of of, uh, its argument engaging both kind of the rational left brain and the more emotional metaphorical right brain, even if you've done that, there's still a ton of things that can go wrong on game day. Actually, the phrase I coined is called the, the delivery dilemma, but it's everything from just failing to understand the enormous impact that the venue makes Mm. Uh, or failing to rehearse properly, so that the argument that you think you've got well groomed in your mind is not the argument that, that actually uh, comes out of your mouth, or you just you just fail on some basic mechanics. You know, the audience maybe gets a bit rambunctious and bo- boisterous and just gets away from you, and the whole thing just you know, goes to hell. <laughs> um, and then even sort of deeper, more profound uh, issues where you just don't come across with the the presence or persona or gravitas that you want to. So the premise of the book is you can have an extraordinary presentation designed but when you actually stand up there are still some things that can really go wrong and um, you just want to avoid those happening but when you marry exceptional design with exceptional delivery then you truly do create a moment for just magnificent communication so it's really just making sure that this this you know what happens right up to and then as you stand up just making sure you get that right
0: Well, Tim, you mentioned rehearsal and venue, and I want to get into both of those things in just a moment. First, I want you to know that that Tim divides the book into three sections. It's how you prepare for the day. That's section one. What you do on the day is section two. And who you are on the day is section three. We'll dig into each of those in just Mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, In that first section, how you prepare for the day, Tim, uh, you say it's important that you anticipate the mindset of the room. What exactly goes into that and, and why is it so important?
1: that's a really interesting one that you you picked up on. So we talk about four or five things in that section and we'll maybe get some of these like rehearsal and understanding the venue, but Mm. um, whenever you build any message, any presentation, you will have understood where the audience is at intellectually way ahead of time because you're building based on their, uh, you know, issues, positions, needs, and interests. So mm. you already have built based on where they are intellectually. But what we also have to understand is where they're coming at, sort of almost from an, an, an emotional, physical, mindset standpoint. I, I'll give you an example. I mean, the obvious one I use is in the book, which is if you go in and you're talking to a group that's just you know been laboring for two years and they've just crushed a new product launch, they're going to be in a really interesting place lively boisterous poking fun at each other poking fun at you and and you've got to match and adjust your comments to that tone you need to relax that it's probably going to get a little wild and wacky and you're going to gently restrain them but you might have a group that just missed its quarterly goal and they're an entirely different mindset and we're not going to go in boisterous and fun and happy I've spoken to groups where they knew layoffs was coming. I actually remember a very poignant example where I got a call ahead of time and it said that one of the ladies on the team is just back at work, but she had a miscarriage Mm. It is really important for speakers to understand that. If I go in my my normal speaking approach is fun and upbeat and boisterous, it is just essential as I go into that that I make an adjustment to match where that room is. I mean, a a fun, boisterous tone would, would have been largely inappropriate. Now, you read it a little bit on the day. But I think most speakers go in with zero understanding of of where the group's at. This isn't hard, you ask one question, just before you stand up like, hey, what's the group going through, where are they at? I spoke recently and they said, well, Tim, you're the last guy in a four day sales conference and the, the unspoken thought is they were hammered last night, they're on gas. So I'm going to make adjustments in in the tone of my remarks. Even in a case like that, I'm probably going to dial back a little bit the depth of the content. I might be willing to be a little bit more uh, to, to sacrifice some interaction because they probably don't have the energy. It's just really important. It's it's a real important factor for speakers to understand where their audience is coming from from that standpoint. And the key word here is adjust. You you, you don't just listen. You listen and then you make. Um, an appropriate adjustment. I've rarely, if ever, in fact, seen that discussed in any presentation skills book. It's incredibly important. Mm. A lot of times it won't be an issue. I mean, the overwhelming majority of time, there's nothing happening. But that one time when it has, when it is happening, it's absolutely essential that you learn about it and adjust for it.
0: Mm. Well, we've hinted at uh, rehearsal. What, what does proper uh, presentation rehearsal, in, in your view, look like, Tim? And, and what are maybe some of the traps that, that the proper rehearsal can help us avoid?
1: Yeah, well, let me take the second piece of that first. Hardly any presenters, I think, rehearse sufficiently. You're not talking about absurd amounts. I mean, if you're doing a TED Talk, which is something you're going to remember the rest of your life. You typically will rehearse 30, 40, 50 times, and that's actually just fine. Most people, when they present, uh, let, me, let me back right up to the real issue. <laughs> Think about the way the brain works. If you're flicking through your notes, your slides, there's two concepts, recognition and retrieval. Recognition is, oh, yeah, I, I recognize this. I know what I'm going to talk about. But retrieval means I can summon the entire argument really clearly and beautifully from memory A good example of this is if I asked you to – if I showed you a penny and said, what is this? You'll say it's a penny. If I said, draw me a penny, you'll get it completely wrong. You'll get the head the wrong way around. Where's the date? Where's the in God we trust or whatever? And that's the difference between recognition and retrieval. And what happens is most people, they kind of look at it and go, I got this. And they don't got this. They Mm. don't have it well enough grooved. So and when that happens, three or four bad things happen. One is you really want to have crafted and cultivated the exact right language that is just going to be the most powerful, the most persuasive, the most compelling and clear, and also that gets your points across in in the most succinct and concise way. You want to find that and then through rehearsal, you want to groove that. And so it comes out exactly the way it was intended and not another way for any given phrase there's hundreds of uh, thousands of possible combinations of grammar and syntax and mm vocabulary and you don't want to trust your brain to find the best one from an infinite number of options so the reason rehearsal is so important is to find and groove that language so it's just ready to come out in exactly the way that you want the other big reason that matters here is a deadly word the e-word which is embellishment when you're not really really good uh, set and you're fixed on, on what you're going to say, your mind will tend to add and embellish as you go and I can see it, you can literally see it happen you can literally see the words coming out of the speaker's mouth or where they're now a little bit off script the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to start blowing up your time, how many speakers run long? All of them, how many of them rehearse to run long? None of them <laughs> That's really interesting. So that extra 10, 15 minutes, it's typically about 10 to 20 percent, is coming from what we call undisciplined embellishment. You blow up your time, you begin to destroy the the elegant narrative of the argument, and also you you enter into some very dangerous terrain of some really strange things uh, are going to come out of your mouth that you haven't planned. Human brain is a connection engine, and it is making connections behind the scenes, and they're trying to get out of your mouth. And if you haven't rehearsed carefully enough, this will happen. I was aware recently of an executive i mentioned this in the book as well Uh, he went to germany he was making a presentation about them adopting some new corporate system out of the u.s they didn't like it they got into a little debate and just out of his mouth he said look guys you know i don't want to be a nazi about this but you really need to do it (laughs) and there's this very uncomfortable silence and uh, I th- I know this guy, and, and to this day he doesn't know why he said it, but I know why he said it, which is he's in Germany. He's surrounded by all things German. His mind is making these connections behind the scenes, and these little gremlins are trying to get out of your mouth. And, you know, we talk about career-ending moments. That actually came close. That guy is no longer permitted to travel overseas. He was severely reprimanded for this. Point being, that's what rehearsals about. <laughs> Rehearsal is about defusing a range of very dangerous landmines. Now you don't, you don't need to go crazy you, you just need to do, in my view three to five, out loud run throughs of the material and do them very intentionally, jot down key phrases that you, you think have come out very well and try to sort of embed those and then the other thing I would always recommend is what I call proportional rehearsal or proportional preparation which is take some really key moments your opening, potentially your really critical ideas and then you're going to do a whole bunch of extra rehearsals of those because those are the moments where um, there is really you want to have zero tolerance for it coming out any other than the best way and, and and chief of all those is the opening i mean that you want that to be absolutely word perfect so the main idea here is as i'm awful lot that can go wrong if you're not rehearsed most people simply do not understand that they think oh i got this i got a basically a pretty good idea of what i'm going to say and that's why when most speakers stand up and they start droning on and on and they start repeating themselves and looping I'm like, yeah, that's because this thing is not clearly articulated in your own mind or laid down in your own mind. And that's why it's not coming out of your mouth, right?
0: Mm. You know, in uh, reading the chapter that focuses on the venue, Tim, I realized that uh, in the past I've not – taken charge of that to the extent that I could based on what you've you've written about this topic I have a, I have a friend that I often co-present with and I, I always thought he was kind of over the top with you know the questions you would ask organizers and always wanting to get access to the room the night before and I was thinking, well you know as long as my computer is compatible with the projector I'm good uh, mm-hmm. why are these extra steps related to the venue so important
1: you know, that's really, uh, that's such an interesting question. I, now I will confess to being personally obsessive over this, <laughs> but I'm also pretty good at what I do. I mean, the, the reason is the venue is having a dramatic impact on your session. I mean, uh, three or four different ways it'll do that. Any extraneous noise, you know, really blowy air conditioner, leaf blowing outside, loud group, you know, in the next room, paper thin walls. The second one is, you know, environment. And good luck. You're speaking at 2.30 and the room 75 degrees. It doesn't matter who you are. You, you are facing an almost impossible uphill battle, you know, layout. People just can't see the screen. They've laid the room out wrong. And I, I think what's really interesting here is I think great speakers have always been obsessive about this. Steve Jobs was absolutely obsessive. And I, I really passionately believe, believe in this one. I'm always going to get in ahead of time usually the night before, we're going to be moving furniture 90% of the time. I'm going to be just making small adjustments for sight lines. There was a really interesting story recently, again, in the book, I was speaking at a tech company's They were doing a huge sales conference in Texas, actually, as it was. And so they couldn't just use one conference facility. They were spilling over everywhere. And I had a session for about 150 people, and they had this really cool, a beautiful room, actually, a really cool ballroom meeting room in a Maggiano's. Well, those rooms are t- t- typically used for fun, you know, fun functions and events. So they got, like, Frank Sinatra being piped <laughs> through the ceiling. And I'm not kidding, it's I mean it's loud and I'm like, we gotta get that turned off. And as is always the case, good luck finding the thermostat or good luck finding the volume control button. And so eventually we found it and and we got it down to a low enough level that we couldn't actually turn it off, funnily enough. We got it down to a low enough level that it wasn't a distraction. I think the interesting idea here is this. Most speakers are just blissfully unaware of this. They think the venue they've been given is just their lot in life. That's nonsense. You completely control this. You control the crap out of this. If I had a dollar for every time I had personally gone up on a step ladder or got someone else up on a step ladder to pull two light bulbs <laughs> because those two light bulbs were washing out the screen and if I didn't do that the choice is on or off on the screen's ruined off everyone's falling asleep mm. And you might know, think that's just crazy obsessive. But you know what? The, the rule of communications is control everything you can control because there's so much actually that you don't. I mean, I make a very forceful point and I'm actually known for this. The room will be 68 degrees. Now, will people be chilly? Yes. And will they learn more? Yes. And it, it's a little bit of a joke. But when you know which things to attend to and you attend to them, then, then the venue becomes an asset and it's all working for you people walk in their sight lines are great they're not crunched too many tables because you've taken care of that the temperature is good there are no extraneous noises you've told the hotel hey you don't need to leaf blow this section right now you manage that and you've created a really conducive learning environment and uh, I think neglect that at your peril. Mm. And again, I, I think you know, maybe the theme of the whole book is great communicators are intentional. They understand all the different things that go into success. I mean, literally, you could have everything right, everything, but a 78 degree room. You could have everything right but leaf blowing that you didn't deal with, and you could be done. I mean these things are apocalyptic. I actually <laughs> call them the four horsemen. So yeah, maybe you think I'm crazy, but I do better as a communicator than most, <laughs> as, as, as did Steve Jobs and others. And you know, it's a different example, but Churchill, legendary communicator, mm. obsessive at rehearsal. I mean great communicators overmanage the prep. Yeah, end of story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on to section two of the book now, uh, what you do on the day. And and Tim hinted at this a moment ago. He talked about your opening. And that actually begins with your introduction. You might have noticed that when I introduced Tim, I, I did it a little differently uh, than I normally do. I didn't talk about all of Tim's uh, accolades. I, I tried to focus on what problem Tim is 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 here to, to help you solve. Tim, did I do okay on that?
1: <laughs> I did notice that. It's it's really funny. Uh, yeah. Again, Little things that make a big difference. So let's imagine you're presenting. A lot of times you're going to have somebody introduce you. And almost all – I mean, firstly, nobody knows how to do a good introduction. Mm. So what they do, they go grab a, a bio, and they read your bio, It's just painful. I mean, like, you really want to know the names of my kids and all that kind of stuff. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. Look how wonderful this guy is. But actually, underneath that, Jeff, honestly, it's a little bit toxic. It's like, look how wonderful this guy is. That is not an audience-centric message. Mm. I believe it actually has the, the, the opportunity for setting up a genuine barrier. Between the speaker and the audience. So I'm obsessive about this too. I don't let people use a bio. If they found one somewhere, I take it from them. I'm <laughs> like, I oh, don't do that. People will hate it. And they look at me and I go, look, let me tell you how to introduce me. Talk to the group about the problem they have and tell them that I know how to solve it. And this is an absolute like golden ticket to success. I mean, if that goes well, it's kind of all I have to do then is not screw up. <laughs> um, I give an example. There was a a conference of like kind of small company CEOs. It's a networking group. And i had been asked to speak on messaging and really, really good friend of mine. His name's Scott. He was kind of my sponsor. He brought me in. He's a good friend of mine. And he had my bio. I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. And I gave him the intro. And basically what he said was something like, you know, all of us here are in businesses that need to message well. And we really struggle at it, don't we? And all the heads are nodding. He says, and we've got marketing people and agencies, but they don't seem to solve the problem either. Lots more head nodding. And, he's, and then he said, look, we've worked with this company, Aratium, and this guy, Tim, for a while. You are just going to love it. And uh, here's Tim. And the room is like poised. Like, yes, mm. there's a problem. And what's interesting is you probably know this, there's very good scientific research that say if I say something wonderful about myself, people don't believe it. But if somebody else says something wonderful about me, people do believe it. And the science shows that that's true even if they know that I know that guy and that he knows me. Mm. It's just something odd about it. Now in that situation, I stand up and say, Scott, thanks, that is that is such a perfect introduction. There's a real problem out there. We don't communicate effectively and we need to know how to solve that. Do you see the difference? I mean, it sounds small. Like the difference between a bio and that intro, Is that big? Is that It's enormous. Hmm. If he stood up and said, Well this is Tim, he's got his degrees, I work with all these companies, but it's just it's just obnoxious. (laughs) I always say this, if you're gonna be audience centric, that actually has to show up in things that are different. And that's a, this is a really good example of one. You get that right, you stand up, you kind of, it's just, you know, it's kind of almost, it, it's hard to screw up as long as you can deliver against that promise. So anyway, that's a really interesting one that you picked up on. It's another little nugget, short chapter section, but boy, it's important.
0: Similarly, in introducing you to our sponsor, FreshBooks Cloud Accounting Software, I could tell you all the things they've done, or I could tell you all the things they're ready to do for you. Well, that's a long list, frankly, but some of those things include easy invoicing, invoice customization, insights. For example, when you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether the client has seen it, Uh, deposits, online payments, notifications, support automated late payment reminders, and again, the list goes on and on. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what FreshBooks can offer you. And if you're still not convinced, I encourage you to take them for a test drive via their free 30-day trial. You get access to all those features and every other feature free for 30 days when you go to FreshBooks.com slash read to lead that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead just be sure to tell them who sent you in the how did you hear about us section and you're well on your way to your free 30-day freshbooks cloud accounting software trial that address again freshbooks.com slash read to lead another favorite section of mine or chapter i should say is the one that discusses this idea tim of the principle of signal and achieving signal through modulation what does that mean exactly
1: That's interesting. That's going to take us more into the brain science realm. So think about it. Someone's in an audience for really any presentation, and a lot of information is coming at them really quickly. And as we know from brain science, the piece of the brain that consumes and processes that new information is called working memory, and it's incredibly limited. You very rapidly get past the brain's limits to, to process information in real time. So now imagine you're the presenter. You've got material that you're covering and some of it is really you know of lesser importance it wouldn't be there if it was unimportant and some of it is absolutely critical well it is very important that the audience picks up on what's really critical Mm. and understands the difference between what's primary secondary critical less critical but most speakers do a very poor job of signaling the difference between what's critical and what's not. And if you think about it, at that moment, they're asking the audience to... to what they're basically saying is, I'm not going to tell you what's most important. I want you in real time to do a, enough of a level of interpretive analysis that you can figure it out for yourself. Well, guess what? Way beyond cognitive limitations there. So what great speakers do is they signal the importance of, of material through this series of tools, which, we, which add up to this thing called modulation. It's due with tone, pitch, and other things. So I'll give you an example. A couple of years or many years ago, we'd written a study uh, uh, on sales manager effectiveness. And we had drawn a conclusion primarily because we know that bad sales managers negatively impact results and they also cause good, good salespeople to leave. Really, if you have a bunch of bad managers, they're going to cause a lot of trouble mm-hmm. at your company. And I, I captured this in the speech on this topic with the phrase, you know, bad managers are poison. And if you think about it, there's two ways of delivering that. One is to say, you know, so we've looked at all this data. We've seen that, you know, sales results hurt. You know, you're going to lose your good, your good guys. And so really the main conclusion you've got to realize here is, you know, bad managers are poison. You just, you've just really got to figure that out. That would be very low modulation. There's nothing really in how I said that to express its importance. And so you're, the odds of you spotting it are very low. Now, what if I said this? You know, guys, look at all this data we've looked at. The, the fact that your sales results are going to hurt, the fact that you're going to lose good people. If you add this together, you, you really can draw only one conclusion. Bad managers are poison. Mm. Now, that is, you know, I, I'm not, I've got a script in front of me, that is 99% the same language, but I guarantee you, two hours later, that idea will have stuck And what great speakers do is they modulate in a fairly wide range. And what I mean by that is for ordinary content, just what I'm doing now, brisk, upbeat, lighthearted, 165 words a minute. That's what I'm doing right now. But when I get to something critical, that completely changes. So what you do then is you slow down. There's a flatness to your tone, almost uh, a certain gravitas. By the way, there's so much garbage written about eye contact and body language, but that is the one time it matters. That's when I will be much more focused, intense. I'll I'll kind of be be very little body movement at that point. I am making damn sure you know that that is the most critical thing. Um, I'm really glad you picked that up. This, This, in my view, of all the mechanics of delivery, is the single most important mechanical delivery skill. In fact, there's a good chapter on it in the book. I don't know if you saw it yet. There's also a video I shot, and there's a link to that in the book. So you can go and look at this. How do you achieve what we call high signal? And when you combine that delivery variation with, potentially drawing high attention to the point in say the handout that you've given the audience maybe there's an icon that says this is the big idea you are really making sure that you are landing ideas powerfully and that is just the thing you have to do i mean the whole you know this i mean from previous book i mean the the, the goal of all communication is powerfully land a small number of big ideas mm. and in the linguistic execution of that signal is the single most important skill
0: mm. Well, as I uh, leaf through the book, I'm looking for more of my favorite sections, and there were many, so yeah. it was hard to uh, to narrow those uh, down. You said earlier, Tim, that uh, effective communication is a transfer of learning, I think is how you said it. Yeah. Um, how many times have I been giving a talk and a hand goes up and I say, you know, let's let's hold the questions until the end? I, I realize reading your book that I'm impacting people's ability to learn by doing that, aren't I?
1: Mm-hmm. I love you, Jeff, so I don't know how politely to tackle that. Um, I am obsessive that you never say that, Mm. ever. Now, sometimes in a ballroom of a thousand, even if you invite the questions, you won't get them. Let's back up and think about two brains interacting. I'm talking. I'm making a point. For some reason, it isn't clear and you don't understand what I'm saying or a really important implication has popped into your mind. How helpful is it that 45 minutes from now at the end, it's that toxic slide that says questions. I just hate <laughs> that so much. How valuable is it from a learning perspective that I allow your learning to be fractured and then I'm willing essentially to lose you possibly permanently by not dealing with that? You're probably picking this up, right? I'm obsessive about <laughs> some things, but I'm also pretty good at this. I want you to stop me and I, I will never in any any setting, say questions at the end, I'll always say, listen, guys, if you have any question at any point, please just ask, because the last thing I want to do is lose you. And then I wouldn't talk about severing the sort of cognitive connection. But say just ask questions as we go, and and so many things happen there that are valuable. The two probably the primary thing that's valuable there is that you you keep that cognitive connection. But when that discussion happens in the you know multiple times across an hour, you're also creating much more of a dialogue, a real. Human interaction, which mm. you lose if you do the the, the questions um, at the end thing. I also think, by the way, it exudes a tremendous amount of confidence because I I think a lot of speakers do questions at the end because. They're worried about being knocked off their plan. They're worried about being knocked off time. They don't know how to manage an audience and and get the conversation back. And I often think speakers hide behind it. I'm not saying you did any of that, Jeff. <laughs> now, a lot of times there's this valid argument that says, hey, I want to get the whole argument across. And by the way, if somebody asks a question and you're about to get to it, I'll say, you know, Jeff, that's a wonderful question. If you don't mind, I am going to thoroughly answer that in the, the, the run of content we're about to get into. So with your permission, let me do that. And then if I haven't answered it at that point, come back to me. So you're very respectful. That's OK if you know you're going to get to it. Again, little things that make a big difference. This is something that I think great speakers do. They, they understand the, the cognitive value of it, the, the relational value of it, and also kind of the confidence and uh, and authority value of it. So it's mm. very important uh, practice in my view. Even in a ballroom where I know I won't get it, I'll still tell. And they can do it. And by the way, I've had that. I've had people in Room of A Thousand, some guy, almost always in the front couple of rows, will ask a question. And I'm fine with it. I absolutely love it when it happens.
0: Well, now onto the third section of the book, and arguably the most important of the three sections, uh, who you are on the day. And there are primarily two themes here language and style. Tim, you have a lot to say about this concept of muscular language, a term I hadn't heard before. How can we achieve this and and why does it matter?
1: Yeah, so you know, let's let's kind of back up to the why does it matter? When we present, the audience is forming a tremendous number of judgments about us, and you want to develop, I think, a persona, a presence that's powerful, compelling, appealing, not obnoxious, something like that, but strong and and. A lot of speakers struggle with this. They they, they get up, and, and at some point, the audience may like or not like their content, but they haven't particularly attached to the person. And when you look at this idea of, uh, I think, a great term I like to use, is executive presence – is how do you create, I wouldn't necessarily say a commanding presence, but a, but a strong presence which garners a lot of respect, even even admiration. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. And that's important because if you're making recommendations, you want people to do something, at some level they're always also gonna be assessing whether you have this sort of the quality, the authority to get them to do that. In other words, people aren't just persuaded by the quality of an argument, they're also persuaded by the quality of a person. Now, okay, so that's your, your framework. Now back up, there are two ways a compelling leadership or executive presence is accomplished. And one of them is language. Um, if you look at language, it's the most fascinating topic. I mean, you've got language in its ordinary use is simply the transmission of thought into a means where I can transfer the thought to somebody else. So Jeff passed the salt. But there's another aspect of language, which is its ability to captivate and, and inspire. And what I think has happened in recent years has been a general dumbing down of language. And we tend to use language that's very weak and uh, unimaginative and uninspiring. There are very few studies on this, but there was a study I mentioned in the book. It was actually done in uh, by Duke University, I mean, way back in 1970s, but I think it's still valid. And let me tell you what they did. What they did is they analyzed a bunch of witnesses in legal Legal cases and they analyzed the type of language they'd used, and then they analyzed the way the juror had evaluated their testimony. Now, that's really interesting, the actual testimony. What they found was where the juror, no, sorry, the witness had used what they called sort of, sort of weak language, then jurors began to develop serious questions in their mind on things like competency, intelligence, trustworthiness. Mm. I mean, that's really interesting. So imagine, imagine you had two witnesses who, who saw the same event and they delivered arguably the identical testimony. But if that witness was using language that was sort of weak, their intelligence, credibility, and trustworthiness were being questioned. I mean, that's actually a little frightening because you tend to think the testimony itself should matter. See, they weren't evaluating the, the witness. They weren't evaluating the testimony. And weak language, let me give you what, what that was. Weak language were things like hedge phrases like, well, you know, like, I think... A, a phrase which is interesting, I'm not going to get into politics, but we're seeing this happen right now, we're called weak intensifiers, mm-hmm. like very. And so what we know is, I think, when when people use these weak language, then the people hearing that form certain judgments about intelligence and trustworthiness and believability and credibility. Whereas what the study also found is when those, those weak forms were absent and people were using better language, none of those things were coming under question. Now, that's the research underpinning. What what I think that means is, and there's actually a, a phrase in the book that says this, every time you open your mouth, and particularly in the public spotlight of a presentation, important aspects of your character are being judged based solely on the type of language that you use and not on the content of what you say. So what I'm trying to get people to see is the type of language they use really matters. So now, what is muscular language? If you imagine vocabulary, and you imagine a two-by-two matrix, a word, any word, can be on one axis, is, is, is it understood? Is it generally understood or is it generally not understood? Mm. If you think about it, the second axis, what I call the y-axis, the vertical axis, is how commonly is that word used today? commonly used or not commonly used. Now, if you put those four together, bottom left is language that's understood and commonly used. And that's fine. It'll it'll get your argument across. That's very. So let's imagine there was a gap between our uh, planned and actual performance. And I'm going to say well, it was a very wide gap. Okay, uh, people understand it. Mm. Nothing interesting, <laughs> nothing compelling about that at all. Now, you don't want to stray into sort of the upper right where you get it not commonly used and not understood What you want to do is get into the upper left, which is still very commonly understood, but not in common usage. And that's the key. What you want to do is take a lot of the the language you're using and make sure that it is, is language that is less commonly used, but clearly understood. Now, let me give you an example. So imagine, imagine I just saw this really simple example. There's a very wide gap. What if I said, you know, guys, I, I've looked at our performance in the last three months, and I'm seeing a troublingly wide gap, an historically wide gap, an alarmingly wide gap, an unexpectedly wide gap. That language is more interesting to people. And so if you get into language that is less bland and pedestrian and uninteresting and develop a, a richer vocabulary, people begin, I mean, we know that they begin to form associations about intelligence, about competence, about believability and so you are trying to communicate a strong presence language has a, an enormous part uh, to, to play in that now you don't stray over to the upper right you now like mellifluous i don't know what mellifluous means And if you do a prodigious man if you stray over into kind of words that nobody understands then clearly you're in trouble as long as you're using commonly used words and by the way, you find isn't a th- thesaurus in 20 seconds <laughs> you're going to be absolutely fine. And also, by the way, when you use the word in proper context, it'll almost always be understood. So what, what I encourage people to do is to develop that richer, almost more heightened language. And it's, it's striking how people uh, are, are drawn to that um, when, when you do it. What's interesting as well is the second huge benefit you get from it is the great virtue of language is that there's, there's so much nuance available to you. If I say there's a very wide gap, so what do you learn from that? There's a very <laughs> wide gap. It was big. If I say, guys, there's a troublingly wide gap, there's there's a richness to that meaning that I now obtain, which is we need to be concerned about this. Mm. Or, you know what, guys, I looked at this. There was an unexpectedly wide gap. In other words, we didn't see this coming. Well, unexpectedly and troubling are very different. So – I really encourage people without stepping wildly out of their comfort zone to just avoid the most common and trite words and, and get after these words that are just, just richer and that have um, um, greater depth and meaning. The moment you start doing it, there's no going back. You love it. And as you use a word, by the way, it begins to groove in your mind and it be- begins to, to flow and to come naturally. And you're not going to offend anybody and you're not going to come across as pompous as long as you stay away kind of from the upper right but the the view that the audience is forming about you is dramatically different when you use language well i think you see this i won't go into it now but you just see this across history Mm. and you know when language is used effectively when it's mobilized uh you really see i think that was really one of the great legacies of churchill he mobilized the english Mm. language i mean he used it As, in fact, did Hitler. You may have seen this as actually a comparison of how Hitler and Churchill each used rhetoric in surprisingly similar ways. But both of them mobilized a nation towards a cause, one just, one lunatic. But that's a different conversation.
0: (laughs) Well, you mentioned uh, Tim, the Duke University study. I want to go back a chapter or two and dig into the study that you and your team did on uh, what aspects of a speaker's style matters to audiences. This was truly fascinating to me. Talk about the three pillars of style that came out of that study.
1: Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. So I heard this speaker speak one time, a lady who I fell in love with and who sadly died the day this book went to print. But she Mm -hmm. died at a ripe old age, 84. And her name was Eva Kor. She was a Holocaust survivor. And when I first heard her speak, she was captivating. I mean, I just fell in love with her. And while it's tempting to think that's just the topic, I've heard lots of Holocaust survivors speak, and I've always been deeply moved by their story, but not necessarily so deeply attached to them as a person. Mm. And that got me thinking about, now, now, why did that happen? Why would five speakers speak on ostensibly the same topic, and yet I'd be particularly drawn to one over the others? And then funnily enough, there's another speaker, I mentioned this in the book, another guy, uh, a friend of mine, I don't know him well, I haven't spoken to him in a long time, called Don Levins, and he's an economist. I mean, the dude's an economist. <laughs> so this is not riveting stuff. But when I've heard him speak, I'm like, the same thing, just this tremendous warmth I felt. I'm like, okay, so what is going on here? And I've heard a lot of economists speak, and trust me, drawn to their warmth is not the phrase I'm (laughs) going to use. So what we did is kind of interesting. I I don't want to suggest this was more scientific than it really was, because I I don't think this was, in in honesty, truly a scientific study. But what we did was this. We identified about 16 aspects of presentation style, so not content, but style. So body language, perceived self, confidence, evidence of nerves, energy, passion, interactivity, humor, dress, movements, so all the things that, that you associate with style. And then what we did is we analyzed a ton of speakers, and we kind of scored them across all these dimensions. So, you know, was this speaker well-dressed, you know, okay-dressed, or oddly, you know, ri- really weirdly <laughs> Not well-dressed. And then what we did is we formed a judgment, a judgment call, admittedly, to say, okay, did we feel this person had that sort of intangible, powerful draw? Like you were really drawn to them, not just by their content, but by the nature of who they were. And then we went back and we tried to kind of cross-correlate against the attributes um, that we had seen them displaying from a, from a style standpoint. Well, boy, it was interesting. So here's what didn't matter. Eye contact, dress body language, volume, as long as you weren't yelling, perceived self-confidence, and believe it or not, evidence of nerves. And so what's weird about that, Jeff, is, is those are the things that most training focuses on. Mm. Like you've got to have great eye contact. Well, you know what? No, you don't. <laughs> you know, in fact, I don't know if you've read this. Did you read Chapter 11? Yep. I'll read Chapter 11 to you. Eye contact and body language. Have some. Don't be weird. That's it. <laughs> That's seven words is the chapter on eye content, and body language. The point being, we just didn't see any correlation. Then we saw a few things that did seem to drive effectiveness. I don't think this is instinctively going to shock anybody. Energy and passion, movement, and I think that injects energy into the room, interactivity, humor, modulation the one we talked about earlier, and also a little bit of precision in language. And, and I'm like, yeah, that, to- that totally made sense to me. Somebody's passionate. They've got a, an, an engaging level of energy. Humor we know is good. They're modulating well. Their language is good. I'm like, yes, I would expect those things to associate. But then we found the big three that seemed to have a very powerful correlation with this thing called executive presence. And uh, it's really interesting, the three. So the first one is authority. There was a notable sense of them being in authority, mm. in in the room, in charge, not in an obnoxious way, but um, I, I tend to be pretty good at this, so I'll give an example. If, if we're coming back from a break and I'm doing a long session, I'm going to say, okay, guys, thanks so much. Uh, take our seats, please. Are we okay? Okay, let's um, shut our technology down. Uh, Two-minute warning, let's get started. That is really important because audience wants to know that someone's in charge so the whole thing doesn't go off the rails, and so an appropriate authority is very important you want to be that now if you stray too far one way you become really weak and that's not good people hate weak speakers you can't become the school bully on the right like sit down (laughs) okay can't do that but if you sit in the right in the middle we call that gracious authority the second one is really interesting i call this directiveness what i mean by directiveness is in your remarks in your style you are willing to to take hold hold your ground take a stand tell your audience what you think this means and what you think they should do with it now there's a reason why this matters right people are busy they don't have a lot of time they don't have a lot of mental energy to process your argument they want you to tell them what you think so do that i think authority and directiveness are somewhat related if you just stand up kind of the humble scribe like hey here's some data you know you decide what it means people hate that if you go too far the other way and say Okay, this is our solution. You have to buy it. Honestly, you have to buy it. You don't have a choice. You'd be stupid not to. That's too far the other way. But if you sit in the middle and I call this humble directiveness, take a stand. I say you know when I look at this case study that we presented, I think this would be hugely beneficial to our organization. I think we should move in this direction and I'm recommending to the board that we do that I think here are the important benefits there are some challenges but we know how to overcome those that's humble directiveness and what I teach here is that as long as you understand that you don't have ultimate authority and if they say, well Tim thank you we're not going to go that route but we heard you you don't jump out of your pram and go crazy you go okay you know that's fine but but this directiveness really Matters. Again, it speaks a lot to the confidence, and this is all about authority and presence. The third one arguably is the greatest or the most important, and it's what I call self-disclosure or or sort of warmth. Now, this is very interesting. This is really about the degree to which your humanity is on display. Now, you've got to remember, any time you present, you are presenting on a business topic, and it doesn't seem that this is a, a human presentation, but of course, you are always putting some element of yourself on display. What we know, and I'll give you an example from the political arena where this played out, is if there's no evidence of your humanity on display. If you are cold, detached, robotic, people do not like that. Mm. And the reason they don't like it is they don't know if they can trust you. Now, I want you to I want to say this as loud as I've said anything. I'm not making a political comment here. But this has been widely noted around Hillary Clinton, that there's this coldness, there's is there a real human being under there somewhere there may be, but she sure as hell isn't letting me see that and that has always led to, to questions of trust so if you if you're too inhuman that is a real issue now there's another end of that spectrum which is wildly unguarded oversharing. And that's like every emotion's on full display. And you don't see that very often. I I, I noted in the book that I think that is on display sometimes with some of the more egregious sort of televangelists, people like that. In a business context, that's just entirely inappropriate. It makes people so uncomfortable. But what I think uh, appropriately in the middle, I call this objective warmth. And objective warmth is, I'm still objective. I haven't lost any kind of grounding in rationality. I'm not this wild emotional basket case. So there's an objectivity, but there's still some warmth. You still know there's a real person there. Mm. If I'm presenting, I might say, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. My wife and I were talking about this, and we just drew this really interesting conclusion. Just the willingness to admit that you're human and show that you're human. So not too far to the left where you show nothing, not too far to the right where you, where you show everything. And I think people are stunningly drawn to that. So those are the three. And I'll close that out by saying if you go back to Eva Kaur, and if I said, well, would this model explain why I just felt such a connection to Eva Kaur, or Don Levins, but let's just take Eva, it absolutely would. Eva displayed an extraordinary authority. I mean, she was, i will get to the humanity later, incredibly human, but she's a very strong woman. She would say, you know, so for example, you know, um, we had to steal things to eat. Uh, we called it borrowing, which was our joke, but we had to steal things. And she'd say, now, if you don't like that, I'm sorry if you have a problem with it. But this was life or death. We had to do this. So she was very strong. And there was an authority there, which was really lovely. Also, you absolutely saw that level of directiveness. She, would, she, she had these amazing stories she would tell about how she was judged for being Jewish. And she said, you know, but we're all we're all capable of this. She said she was talking in a high school recently and uh, a boy came in and she talked, she basically talked about his jeans were hanging so low. His sort of bum was hanging out. (laughs) And, and she said this amazing thing. And she said, um, and I realized I hated him because he was just so disheveled. And she said, and then I realized I'd become a Nazi. I judged him for something other than his character. And then she said, don't do that. Don't judge someone based on anything other than the quality of their character and their actions. I'm like, yeah. And I'm, so I'm going back now mm. and I'm cross-referencing back you. I'm like, there's directiveness. <laughs> She isn't just saying prejudice is evil. She's saying, look, don't don't do this. And then the objective warmth was probably just this incredible thing. I mean, here she is objectively talking about the Holocaust experience. But then then she'd say, I remember another story. She'd say, you know, we were given a crust of bread at night. And said we had to decide, eat it at night. But but you'd be better to keep it till the morning. But if you did and you fell asleep, the rats would come into your bed Mm. and eat the bread. And she said, it was so hard. I'm a 12-year-old girl, and I I just don't know how to decide. Eat my bread or keep it and risk the rats. And then there's this, this beautiful human being... On display Now, obviously, the Holocaust experience is a slightly more unusual example. But I think if you go back and look at the speakers you love, Jeff, and just to start to triangulate on gracious authority, sort of humble directiveness and and this objective warmth, I think you'll you'll find, man, the ones you really love, you, you keep coming to the center of that bullseye. So in the book, I unpack in quite a lot of detail what it's like to get it wrong at each extreme, and what getting it right looks like in the middle. And interestingly enough, I I won't say who, but a major U.S. corporation has asked uh, asked us, uh, me, to convert that section into a training for all the senior women at that company. And they initiated this. But the reason was interesting, and I was like, okay, tell me why. And they said, because oftentimes when when women have been promoted into very senior roles in what is a traditional sort of male dominated environment so they do struggle with this idea of presence or, or, or accomplishing this, this this attribute of strong presence or executive presence and when their their leadership group and their sorry their learning and development group read the book because they do get up they, they use the, the first book as the basis also for some communications training it just jumped out at them and said, man, this is what the, the, the women's leadership network needs. So it is funny, the book does kind of build to this higher altitude, you've got to get through the block and tackle of the first couple of sections. But I think there's something really powerful about mastering language and rhetoric and really beginning to cultivate a, a winning style.
0: Tim, I know you, as you did in the book, you, you model a number of histories, uh, excellent speakers, you mentioned several in the book, Churchill and, and, others. When it comes to the books you're reading, whether it's about this topic or others, what what do you find that's uh, jumping out to you as having had a big impact on you?
1: Uh, a great question. I mean, I'm very eclectic in my reading, which is quite kind of common. I, I, I am really enjoying at the moment a lot of the books out there on on what we're learning about neuroscience, and it's not particularly new, but just a breathtaking book out there is, but called "The Brain That Changes Itself." I just love that. It's about really neuroplasticity and how adaptable the brain is after an injury or something like that. So I would, I would absolutely. Lead into that, read a very good book recently called Dreamland, which you probably heard of on the opiate epidemic in the US and and how it happened. And that's absolutely fascinating. And if you want just a wild and wacky book, just a great book, but funniest, funniest in a weird way, (laughs) um, book called The Psychopath Test. Um, The Psychopath Test is there's a 20 question test that tells you if someone's a psychopath. And it's hilarious and really interesting and disturbing because what you realize is that, you know, 99 out of 100 psychopaths are in jail because they kill people, and the 100th is running a Fortune 500 company. Mm-hmm. Because the the ability to distance yourself from other people's feelings is kind of, at times, a winning attribute in the corporate world, which mm-hmm. says a lot about the corporate world. So anyway, those, those three are probably the big ones. Right? So <laughs> that'll keep people up at night for a while. <laughs> for sure.
0: Well, uh, before we wrap, anything else from the book you want to make sure we... We know or anything you and your team are working on that's down the road uh, that you want to make sure we know about?
1: You know, people ask me, was the second book a sequel to the first? In many ways, it was. The first book is really deep on message design. And then the second book is how do you make sure that design comes across well on game day? And all the evidence is that the the books have been, the second book is being as well received as the first. So I think it is a natural pairing. I think the main theme of the book, I think, is actually its very last sort of line, which is, look, does everything here guarantee success? You know, no, there's always something. But you do control a a lot more than you think you do. And there are a lot more rules than you think there are. But the, the main problem with communication isn't that people are dumb; They just don't know what the rules are. Mm-hmm. Like, get there an hour early, because physics says that's how long it takes to cool a room down. That's not complicated, but people don't understand it. So I, I think, honestly, the great virtue of this book is to codify everything that really matters. And you're going to read some of it and go, oh, okay, yeah, it makes sense. That's not that breathtaking. Still important, mind. And then you're going to read other things and go, Wow. I, I could really cultivate a winning style or, or, or modify my energy level the way I use use humor. So I'm really excited to see what people do with this. I think as people go away and apply this, I think they're going to see some pretty spectacular results.
0: I agree. His name is Tim Pillard, and the book is Mastering the Moment, Perfecting the Skills and Processes of Exceptional Presentation Delivery. I'll be sure and link to our last conversation with Tim where we talked about The Compelling Communicator, his last book that he referenced in the show notes for this episode. Tim, thank you so much for uh, giving us uh, your time today and sharing with us all that you've learned about this and mastered in, in this space. We really appreciate it. And I thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's just absolutely lovely talking to you. It's a pain to write a book, but when you get to have a really, really rich conversation about it, it kind of makes it all worthwhile. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for this podcast. It's it's not just valuable, it's important. People need to understand how important reading is and to get back into it. So thank you for what you're doing.
0: At the show notes page created just for this episode, I'll include links to the books that Tim recommended. Also a link to his current book and his book from a few years ago that we talked about, as well as a link to that interview and the video that Tim referenced as well. That and more can all be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 294 for episode 294. Got a question, comment, suggestion, or feedback for the podcast? You can email me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. I hope you'll consider that free 30-day trial offer from our sponsor, cloud accounting software, FreshBooks. There's no obligation and you get access to 100% of FreshBooks features when you take it for a test drive. You can do that at freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Well, that's gonna do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the podcast. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead.